Hello, hello. Thanks for stopping by for another episode of The Swerve Effect. My name is Kayla Hargett. I'm your host, and I welcome you and your ear holes to another episode. So this podcast is about people that I call the swervers. These are inside personal stories about people that have either swerved off course, the template lifestyle, swerved around something life has thrown at them, or maybe just swerved off of one path to go ahead and follow a dream on another. So today I'm talking to Caroline Milton. She's a health coach, now was an engineer. And she developed the transformation table. It is a whole health transformation program. It's where you can go to get weekly sessions of personalized by her coaching, support, encouragement to make all of your dietary and lifestyle changes you want. She's been through all of this before, so she's got your back 110%. But before that, she was a biomedical engineer. And finally, fascinatingly enough, I got to learn what the hell a biomedical engineer even does pretty cool actually. But today is really special because Caroline's actually sharing two swerves. The second one is not passion and career oriented, but a real life challenge that she has faced. It's one that took a lot of vulnerability and openness for her to share. And I feel very proud of her for being brave enough to want to put it out there. This is part of her story. This is part of what brought even more passion behind her wanting to be a health coach. She felt very called to share this message with the women and men who have possibly faced this same challenge in hopes that if they heard her story and how she was able to move through it and past it on some level, that maybe they would gain a bit of comfort and support as well. So grab a drink, kick your feet up, and get ready to make a new BFF. Take two. Excellent. (laughs) Hey, Caroline. Hi, Kayla. I wanted to start off by you telling everybody about your mad skills as a local sports announcer. Yes. (laughs) When I was in high school, I did announcing for our high school boys baseball team. My boyfriend in high school, who I dated all throughout high school, was a pitcher on the baseball team. And so I would do music for them. I picked, helped them pick their, their walk-up songs for when they would do batting. And I announced with this guy <laughs> named Charlie. And Charlie worked for a local radio. And so after that, he asked me if I would do some sports casting over the summer. And it was not at all what I expected. They just pretty much gave me like a flip Motorola <laughs> Motorola Razor. You know, like when That's I was amazing. in high school, that was the phone everybody wanted was the Motorola yeah. Razor. <laughs> he gave me one of those. It's just like, what solid equipment? Yeah. <laughs> just speak into the microphone on this. And so I did local three-on-three basketball tournaments and other, you know, small-town affairs. I grew up in a really small town in northern Indiana, so that was entertainment. Yeah. But it was, it was fun. I really enjoyed radio broadcasts. And you broadcasts. played what sport? I played soccer and basketball. But you announced baseball and everything. Yeah. That's what I feel is, like, so – just blows my mind because I played – 
woke like softball yeah. off and on, and I could not tell you like crap what was happening in the yeah. game. So I'm like just very in awe. I did a lot of the goodness. color commentary. So okay. <laughs> <laughs> did anybody team. have songs that they wanted to be introduced to, and you're like, that's stupid. No, yes. this is what we're gonna do. Like, yes. What was the worst song? Freaking Rocky. Um, <laughs> oh, there were probably some really vulgar rap songs oh. that we were just like, like high yeah, we're not gonna play such explicit music for you to walk out on the field to. Okay, so as a kid, I know that you skipped a few levels of math, but I need Mm -hmm. you to elaborate on what a few levels mean. Are you four and you're doing pre-calc, or what does this (laughs) consist of? Yeah, when I was in fifth grade, so let me back up. I I was in a a program called Gemini in elementary school, and Gemini was a gifted and talented program, but their approach was that they had two grade levels together. So you would be in one classroom for first and second grade, and then you would go to another classroom for third and fourth, and then finally fifth and sixth. So elementary was kindergarten through sixth. And when I was in fifth grade, my teacher, Miss Fletcher, which apologies to Miss Fletcher, I was not (laughs) kind to her. I can't imagine that, but continue. (laughs) She, She really wanted to advance me in math. I wasn't really challenged by fifth grade level math, and so she started having me do math with the sixth graders, and I just continued to progress. And so when I was in middle school, I was going over to the high school for math class, and that was a really interesting experience (laughs) to be a seventh grader and and to be in class with sometimes juniors in high school, which... You're so itty-bitty. Yeah, and I remember... There was a lot of days where we would just play cards in class. And I'm like, why am I coming over from the junior high to just play cards in class? Because that's what you do. When I was a senior in high school and I took pre-calc, I left and went to McDonald's because I didn't like how her mascara looked. It bothered me, so I pieced out. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I got to a point. I got to a point where in high school I felt like if I continued to just go to the college that was in our town for math and continue to excel in math that I was going to be missing out on certain things of being a high schooler. And so I ultimately decided to take pre-calculus twice just to have fun with it and to be with my classmates. And (laughs) I guess she says to have fun with it. That's hilarious. Yeah. Did you get the same grade each time? Yeah. Better the second time? I mean, I got an A plus both times. Nailed it. Yeah. But it was really interesting to me to go then to an engineering school and to take engineering math. And all of a sudden, it was challenging because all of my life leading up until then, math never was hard for me. It was something that came very easy. And I even took college level calculus when I was in high school and it was light years different from the calculus that I took when I Hmm. ended up going to college. That's interesting. Yeah, very different. Let me jump back a little bit. What all did you do as a kid? Were you always into math like as a hobby? I definitely had a creative side to me and I think that's definitely how I played. I was in a play group when I was young and we were very imaginative in that play group. And I remember that when I would play with Barbies as a little girl, I was less concerned with like what Barbie was wearing. I would take towels, all of the towels in our house, and I would roll them up, and I would just like lay out a floor plan of what Bar- Barbie's house would look like, and then I would have her move around her house. You know, like a, a literal floor plan. Really? 
Yeah, I didn't have a Barbie dream house. I just made a house out of towels, <laughs> and that's how. I, yeah. Oh my gosh, that's so cr- that's interesting. Yeah, and I grew up on a farm, uh, and so we had lots of land, and I played outside a lot. I would run through the cornfields and pretend that I was uh, Native American, and that that was my home, and I would play in the corn. Uh, lots of Children of the Corn references there, but <laughs> but there was just a lot of creative outlet growing up that way so no I wasn't like playing with tinker toys Mm -hmm. all of the time I I I did play with tinker toys from time to time but I was very expressive I did theater from the time that I was like in kindergarten all the way through college Mm -hmm. and those sort of creative outlets were the things that I really enjoyed at what point did you then decide I'm gonna let math or my talent at math dictate what I go to college for or was there a period where you were like trying to decide between theater and mm-hmm. engineering? Yeah I remember that I really loved writing when I was in high school and I was a part of our journalism club and I was on yearbook staff I really loved expressive writing and creative writing and I came alive doing it. There was one time I was on an assignment. We went down to Fremont, Indiana, which is where James Dean was born. And our journalism teacher said, we just need to find a good story about James Dean. It was 2005. So it was 50 years since he had passed away. And I remember that I just started talking to people and I ended up in the parlor of some really sweet woman's home who was his childhood best friend like what? they played together wow. she, she helped on his aunt and uncle's farm there in Fremont and it just was this amazing story of kind of giving a unique side of James Dean and I loved that like that was yeah. really interesting to me and then in high school I felt like I needed to step back and evaluate all the things that I was good at and I had heard you're good at math, you're good at science. And I felt like I owed the world to go and follow that. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of had two different trajectories. I had my heart set on going to Wheaton College in Illinois. Mm -hmm. And if I did that, I was going to study business and then potentially do some sort of soft engineering with it. And, or I was going to go to Rose Holman, which is where that same high school boyfriend uh, was (laughs) studying engineering, and I was going to study engineering there. And ultimately, what made the decision for me is that I had the opportunity to play both soccer and basketball for Rose Holman, and I didn't have those opportunities elsewhere. And I got waitlisted at Wheaton. So that kind of is what took me in the trajectory that I ended up on. Did you ever, though, question... I mean, why not go for creativity? Like, yeah, you're being told that you're good at science and math, but was there any part of you that was kind of like... I kind of really wish I like went for this journalism yeah. or something. It was the security that came with knowing I was going into a career path that was going to be financially very stable. I remember thinking I'm going to be able to provide for myself and I'm going to marry somebody who's going to be able to provide for himself. And it just seemed like this very safe, very nice picture of what I thought life could look like. It's really interesting at seven, 16, maybe yeah. even when you're starting to think about it, but like 17 to already, I mean, at 17, I'm at the mall. Side note, listen to episode one and find out what and where hanging out at the mall at 17 gets you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I had like, you know, I was going to college and all that stuff, but, but that's an interesting thought to have at that age that yeah. you were worried about your financial security. How much of your parents played a role in that? My parents are very financially responsible and they they have been 
the entirety of my life. And I think they've been really good role models of how to manage your money well. One thing, as I was digging into some of like my personal views on money, is that one of the ways my parents were financially or fiscally responsible was to buy things on sale. And to me, as a young girl, I interpreted that as we don't have money to afford the full price items. Uh, yeah. And and so I think I took that and I turned it into I need to be able to make sure that we're not scrambling for the sale items. Yeah. Now as a functional adult I recognize the value in what what the they were doing. Clearance aisle, yeah. But yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um and they they certainly weren't spending money on things that they didn't need. It wasn't yeah. a frivolous spend. And and so that, I think, gave me this sense of needing financial responsibility uh, in how I chose a career. So it was just something that you observed. It wasn't necessarily a lesson that they taught you right. financially. Because I always wonder if that made a difference on what people chose to go for, too, is is it the parents that are, like, sitting their kids down and teaching them how to balance checkbook and the importance of credit mm-hmm. and all of that stuff? If then that has something to do with what they do yeah. or or if you lack that guidance? Yeah. Maybe are you more like free willy yeah. out there? That's interesting. They did do all of that. So I learned how yeah. to che- balance a checkbook. I wasn't uh, a high schooler who had a job until I was ready to graduate. So they wanted me to focus on being yeah. young. They wanted me to focus on being a student and being an athlete. And they taught me some of those financial responsibilities as I was growing up. And they didn't pressure you at all on what to pick. They were just like... Go do your thing, girl. No, they didn't. They <laughs> were didn't they kind of excited me. that you chose that though over like theater. Yeah, I, I think so. She'll live here less. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. she's not going to move back yeah. after college. Yeah, I feel pretty good about that. Yeah, so. um, they've they've always really been supportive. I will say, uh, when I made the decision to swerve and yeah. move from engineering into my current field. The response from my mother was, yeah, I never really understood why you went into engineering in the first place, but I'm always going to support she you. She kept quiet. That's yeah. so great. That's so cool. I yeah. love that. And the response from my father was, I know that I never have to worry about you. Aww. Yeah. yeah. So that, I think, is really, really how my parents have always been supportive of myself and then also my siblings. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you're in college. You're in school for engineering. What field? Is that what it is? Yeah. Field of engineering? Uh, Concentration. Genre? Concentration. (laughs) Gotcha. Yes. (laughs) I studied biomedical engineering. Meaning? Meaning (laughs) there's a a pretty broad spectrum of what a biomedical engineer can do. So uh, there were three focuses that we could have. There was biomechanics. So how does the body move, which is what really interested Ah, me. Ah, okay. There was... Bioinstrumentation, which was like bioinstrumentation specialists, they would build circuit boards so that a prosthetic arm could do what a prosthetic arm needs to do to mimic a regular functioning yeah. arm. That's awesome. And then there was biomaterials, was the third. <laughs> the one that you didn't go for. <laughs> yeah. And biomaterials was think skin grafts. So they're coming up with ways that we can replicate the human body and the human tissues. And so they were all very interesting to me, but ultimately I really loved analyzing the way that humans walked and how posture could be improved. And specifically, I was really interested in 
how engineers could better or improve the quality of human life through design. And so I had some internships in college where I designed spine implants where uh, they could have a a normal quality of life rather than having rods and screws in their backs. Wow. Yeah. Okay, so we're back in college. Mm -hmm. We're living life back there. (laughs) What was that like? Were there any moments back then that you had questioned things? I mean, it sounds like you're pretty interested, so... Yeah. During college, what was that like? I had a lot of hesitation as I was going through college. There were aspects of being at Rose Holman that I loved and I adored. And there were things that were really challenging for me. Primarily, I wasn't used to being challenged. And so when things didn't come easily to me, I thought that was an indication of failure. And my sophomore year, I filled out an application to Purdue. I was going to transfer and... My good friend Travis sat me down and talked me through all of the reasons why I should stay. He brought over (laughs) an armful of his files from classes and pretty much just like gave me all the answers to homework that I would need and reassured me that sticking it out was going to be worth it. Why? Like what was his mindset? I think the, the biggest argument that helped me was that if I were to go from a small school environment studying engineering where there was a lot of support and help offered to a very large school that that transition would be very difficult for me because I was used to being able to have requests and and help from professors and in a large school setting it would not be that way professors would not be available yeah. uh, at the same availability i right. guess as a, a small school would be and this was primarily a male environment yes rose holman was 4 to 1 guys to girls they actually first accepted women in 1995 and so by the time i got there in 2007 there was still very low percentage of females that were going to school there. So good for dating, not good for <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> trying to like get yourself out there. <laughs> the the motto was, the odds are good, but the goods are odd. <laughs> so <laughs> that kind of gives that. you an indication. Yeah, that you were in a sorority, and that's how you allowed yourself to feel like you fit in somewhere there. Yeah, yeah. I was a member of a, a sorority, Chi Omega. And I loved it. I thought it was so important for me in an environment like that to be able to surround myself with women. And I did that through my involvement with athletics, but then also with my involvement in a sorority. And a sorority at a small engineering school is not like what you see in the movies at all. <laughs> we didn't have no a big sorority. Yeah. <laughs> no, totally dry. Um, a lot of flashcards. <laughs> yeah, a lot of flashcards. We didn't have a big sorority house, only... The members of the executive board would live together, and, and so I had that opportunity, and it was one that I really enjoyed. So um, it was a, a special experience, and I got to be part of the recruitment team my junior year, and it was really neat to be able to work with younger women yeah. and show them the benefits of being engaged in a female social circle, mm-hmm. especially in an environment where you're predominantly surrounded by males. You might be the only female in your class. And as I look back, I think that was a really clear like first sign that I cared a lot about pulling women up in environments in which they were the minority. 
how much did that impact or motivate you or inspire you to continue? Like, maybe I do owe it to go to school for engineering or to be an engineer, like, as a female. Yeah, I definitely developed a complex where I felt like I was a token. Like, I needed to be the token this, or I needed to be the token that. And when I went into manufacturing, I ended up working in maintenance and engineering in manufacturing environments and saw that I was being used as a token there as well, that that they really wanted to have strong females in technical services, and they wanted to develop that side of the business and see more female representation there, which is awesome. I think that's fantastic. But it became clear to me that I was kind of helping to check the box, and I carried a great deal of responsibility in that, and I wanted to be who they wanted me to be, and I, I ultimately just found that it didn't fit. It didn't feel sincere. It didn't feel like... Uh, a sign that I was willing to carry at the front of the lines Mm -hmm. uh, for the foreseeable future because there was very much one trajectory that my career was going to go with that. I know you were the first female in a particular role there. Did that impact at all wanting to be an advocate for women? And then, because I think a lot of people too would argue we're all dislike something about our job. You just have to find something that fulfills you within it. And yeah. so advocating for women could have been fulfillment in your role. So yeah. was there a struggle between wanting to stay there and do that? Whenever you're the first of something, that feels awesome. It, yeah, it does. <laughs> it feels so good. <laughs> and so to be the first woman on that team in that environment, it felt really good. I felt it made me feel special. Yeah. And I I definitely had this mindset that I can change people's perceptions and I can make a a big difference here. And I do believe that I've done that in the work that I did in manufacturing. But it it was challenging. There were a lot of times where I dealt with more than harassment in the workplace. And, you know, it's a it's kind of a boys boys world and there are a lot of times of being called honey sweetie baby Uh, and you know and worse things than that too just having men oogle you and and just really belittle who you are as a contributing member of a team because you're a woman it it gave me some thick skin I think that those experiences helped me to learn how to stand up for myself They taught me how to give a firm handshake and how to bring some of my masculine side Mm -hmm. to situations where I needed to be strong and I needed to be an advocate for my team. Yeah. How long were you in that role? For my first company, I was in that role for three and a half years in different levels of the role. So Mm -hmm. in that department for all three and a half years and then for close to a year in my final role, which was as the maintenance manager for the site. And then when I moved to Kansas City, I worked for another company and spent a year and a half in in the role of maintenance manager. So you're you're doing that first original role. You're already feeling like you're a token plus feeling like you're not even sure engineering is like for you anyways. Yeah. Why take on another job doing the same field yeah. in a new city? <laughs> so there's there's Two parts of that. First of all, when I was working in California at my first job, 
I had a really awesome mentor there, someone who was a feminist, and he wanted to have women on his team. He thought there was so much benefit from having women on his team, and he is who brought me up, right? And mm-hmm. I think that's so important to have in the, the workplace are male advocates who are as fierce to a feminist as we are because mm-hmm. that's how we can really make some big changes. Yeah. And he also gave me the autonomy to go and join women's groups in Southern California. And so I was a committee member of the Network of Executive Women in Southern California, and I loved that. It was like, you know, this awesome network of women who are doing amazing things in the consumer packaged goods industry, and I thrived on that. And I wanted that to be my entire focus Mm -hmm. and realized that I wasn't going to be able to do that in that capacity, that it was very much like, here is your trajectory. At the same time, I was beginning to miss the Midwest a lot. Mm -hmm. I didn't see myself settling down in California and really wanted to be closer to family. I lost my grandmother during that time, and I couldn't come back and help care for her in Mm -hmm. those final days and weeks, and that really sat on my soul pretty heavily because of how close I am to my family, how much of a, an important role they play in who I am. Yeah. And so I made the decision to move back to the Midwest and had a job interview with this company in Kansas City and said, what the heck, I can get some good interview experience by yeah, going. Yeah, get like things rolling <laughs> yeah. here, at least have some sort of stability. Yeah. Are right. boyfriend in all of this? So I met him the day that I did the interview here in Kansas City. Wait. No, the high school boyfriend. Oh, um, high school boyfriend. We all have to know where he went. <laughs> <laughs> he, he and I uh, parted ways during college and okay. he ended up going to Boston area. Okay. Yeah. Okay, getting so married, having babies, and oh, well, being congratulations. successful. Yeah, he's a he's a good one. So so okay. So now you're in Kansas City. Yep. You met. I met my your husband. Your current husband. Yep. Okay. My current husband. Your current husband. <laughs> <laughs> your husband for now. <laughs> yeah. I'm Sorry. What's his name? Jeff. <laughs> Sorry, Jeff. <laughs> I met Jeff uh, the evening that I interviewed for this job. It was. Crazy. Yeah, it was totally crazy. It was a Friday the 13th, and it was this gorgeous day in Kansas City. I remember in the morning I woke up and I went for a run before my interview, and I was like in tank top and shorts. It was so beautiful here. And then that evening it was like 35 and windy. Typical Kansas City oh, weather. Yeah. <laughs> I don't understand. <laughs> You're feeling cute at first. and then. <laughs> yeah. But we met through my friend Travis, that same friend who sat me down my sophomore year of college. He was a, and still is, a track coach for the Blue Valley School System and was coaching a track meet that night. I didn't know anybody in Kansas City, so that was my Friday night fun. And my husband was working for Church of the Resurrection at the time as their youth minister and had athletes that were running in the track meet and was best friends with Travis. So Travis sneakily arranged for Jeff to come and and babysit me in the stand. Travis is like your life guardian. Yeah. 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 You know, that was the initial meeting, and I kind of stepped back after that weekend and thought about how big of a risk that would be to move to Kansas City and was I willing to take a risk like that. And it kind of seemed a little bit... Silly to 
make a decision with your heart when, you know, you're obviously in a state of infatuation and, mm-hmm. and not necessarily in a, a state of mm-hmm. long-term thought. But fortunately, the character of who my husband is is beyond infatuation. You know, yeah. just someone that really is a wonderful partner and so supportive. Jeff, good guy. So you're in this role, this job here that you took in Kansas City. You're in it for a year. Mm-hmm. When did you start to question, okay, yeah. I'm just not into engineering anymore? And, and then did you have an idea of what you wanted to do past that? I remember Jeff took me to see the Nutcracker here. And I was so excited to move to a city that had a ballet. I danced ballet uh, all through my childhood. And I'd never seen the Nutcracker performed. I'd ever only ever danced it myself. And so it was such a treat to be able to go to the, the, the Nutcracker, and I didn't enjoy it at all because I was sitting there thinking about work. I could feel my phone that I was required to be on call. I could feel it just buzzing and buzzing and buzzing, and that anxiety of feeling like I could never turn off my brain. And I was constantly trying to multitask. I couldn't form complete sentences anymore. I felt like my just intelligence was sliding away from me because the environment was not a healthy environment. And for as much change as I tried to stand for there, I was only one person. And I think we all kind of take on this responsibility of thinking, I can be that change. I can really be that change. And I had employees while I worked there who believed in me, who said, I've never had a a boss like you before. I've I've never had someone who listened to us the way that you listen to us and who is as fiercely advocating for us the way that you do. And so I I thought, like, I can can do this. I can pull my bootstraps up and I can do it. But I was just so sick, right? And not in a traditional sense of sick, but I was so stressed out. And, you know, I wasn't enjoying the time away from work. I was constantly feeling like I was in work. Mm-hmm. And and I did not see that that was a possibility for changing within that environment. And so I made the decision that I was going to leave after my contract was up. I signed a two-year contract. Mm. And then about a year, year or so into working there, we found out that our plant and our division of the company was going to be split apart from the rest and it was going to be sold. And so we were offered a retention bonus and the dates lined up to within a week of when my two-year agreement was Mm -hmm. finalized. So I said, I'm going to stay through the sale of the business and then I'm going to take some time and I'm just going to step back and think about what it is that really resonates with me, where I feel like I've been able to step in in my career or in my experiences. I wanted to connect the dots of what made me come alive or uh, where I demonstrated passion in what it was that I was doing. So you didn't know exactly what you wanted to do after that. You just no. knew that was kind of like the straw that broke the camel's back. Was yes. Cracker. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So, okay, so you finished up your two years. Mm-hmm. What was your exit plan yeah I mean what do you recommend for somebody wanting to do the same thing how do you responsibly yeah leave first of all talk to a CPA (laughs) talk to (laughs) financial advisors talk to people who can give you really solid advice about how to prepare for that figure out how much you need to put away 
in retirement, how much you need to put away in savings, what you can be doing to set yourself up in the long term. Because we did some of that. I wish we would have done more of that. Yeah. Because we stepped away with a very decent amount of savings, but not really a, a big full picture of what things were going to look like on the other side. And when I left, originally I was going to take one month and then re-enter into a corporate-ish workforce. And when I left, I found health coaching and ultimately decided to start my own business there. And so this chunk of savings that we had was enough to really be comfortable for about six months. Mm -hmm. And that was the buffer that we needed. And different people will tell you different things. Some people will say, have a year's worth of savings, have six months worth of savings. Uh, But really, you need to sit down and not look at what your spending looks like in this moment, but consider what your spending will look like dependent on the venture. Because we didn't factor into our budget the cost of private health insurance. We didn't factor into our budget all of the startup costs associated with becoming your own LLC, all of the costs of incorporation, of hiring consultants to help, you know, and, and of course those are all things that are tax deductible, <laughs> but, but just having, you know, talk to somebody who's done it, mm-hmm. maybe not in your exact field, yeah. and say, look, I need to have a conversation about money. And it's one thing we are so petrified to talk about mm-hmm. is money. It's such a sensitive thing. And I wish that weren't the stigma. I wish it were okay for us to sit down across the table and be really transparent about things because I think that's a huge part of somebody being able to launch successfully is seeing a a clear picture of what's on the other side. You going into this field from the get-go and realizing it's 16, 17, that financial stability was important to you, How much of a role did that play when you were leaving as far as the retirement side of it goes? Yeah. I I didn't max out my retirement last year, and again, I wish that I had. Retirement is one of those things that feels like it's easy to put off, and we shouldn't be putting it off. And that's one thing I know my (laughs) male... My male peers from Rose Holman are doing a much better job of is they're like, I don't need a lot of money to live off of. I'm going to max out my savings. (laughs) I had a roommate in California who changed my opinion on retirement of really using, you know, using retirement as a tool for success. And I think that was a valuable lesson. So I wish I would have done more of that leading up. And I think ultimately we had some fear. We had some fear of like, we need to have this money somewhere where we can see it, somewhere where it's accessible in case... The, the big uh-oh happens. Yeah. And I had had a friend who recently swerved and, and launched, she and her husband launched a business together. And very soon after they went all in, they experienced a pretty hefty financial blow that they weren't experiencing, or weren't expecting, rather. And I think that seeing that, you're like, oh, yeah, I have to be really, really in control of my money. I need to be able to see it, you know? Mm-hmm. And... Uh, I think that that's one thing that the past years helped me with is being a little bit more growth-minded mm-hmm. uh, rather than risk-averse. It's kind of scary because you 
your why and your intention behind starting something is usually some sort of passion in that yeah. in that area. But then if you start to, then all of a sudden your focus is purely on the money side of it, and it almost takes away the why and the intention. So yeah. It's just like this balance between the two. So when you said, I found health coaching, because yeah. this is not something that you had been thinking about for years that you want. I mean, you've been obviously interested in health. Yeah. You're in sports and all of that. But where did health coaching come from? I didn't know what health coaching was until last summer, until I was put in touch with an acting health coach by a good friend of mine named Ashley. She connected us because she thought we were like-minded, not because she thought that I should be a health coach. And as I'm talking to this woman, Kelly, uh, and hearing about what it is that she's doing, my perception of what a health coach was was completely shattered. And I realized that it was taking two things that I cared a lot about, which was my health and wellness, and helping people break through their barriers based on their beliefs and identities, and like partnering them together. Yeah. And I was, I was just floored because it finally made sense. It was a way of being able to have, you know, interaction, relationship with people. When I was a manager, I loved sitting down with people and doing their developmental plans. I loved going through with mechanics and saying, what skill do you want to work on? How can we get you there? Mm -hmm. How can we give you the tools to succeed? And my favorite part of the job was when I would have men, men come up to me, and sometimes women, but I worked predominantly with men and say, you changed my family's life because mm -hmm. we were able to make more money and provide for my kids. Wow. You were able, you know, you helped me become who I didn't think that I could be. And that was really, really rewarding was to be able to do that, to really know that people were taking home what, you know, because we could leave work at work. Yeah. But for people to be able to take that home and uh, to make an impact and a difference on their families, that was important to me. Mm -hmm. And it was important to me to help people grow. And health coaching does that. It allows you to look at where you want to grow. And it's not just let's lose weight. In fact, I would love to work with all clients who are like, I don't care if I lose weight at all. I want to have more energy yeah. or I want to not have headaches every other day. Uh, I want to not be stressed out with my work. I, I really want to take this in a direction where I can help women who were me, mm -hmm. right? Who were unhealthy with stress in their work environment. And how can we manage that stress? How can we make you a priority within the context of your, of your life? Yeah. How much of you advocating for women in the past has played a role in mm -hmm. your clientele today? Yeah. Absolutely so much. I really resonate with people who I see a little bit of myself in, but I also resonate with people who are just sick of being a failure, right? Mm -hmm. Or feeling like they are a failure or who feel like their worth is gone. Because I've been there. I've been in uh, a situation in which I felt like my worth was completely stripped away from me. Mm -hmm. Oh, hey, it's me just chiming in here for just a second. So this is the point where we do start to talk about Caroline's second swerve, the challenge that she had faced in life years ago. This is actually something that she brought up to me after we had already recorded this episode. So we spent some time with her sharing the story with me. And ultimately, she had decided that she felt called to include this portion of her life in the story that she's sharing with us today in hopes to offer some comfort and support for those who may benefit from it. Also, a quick disclaimer that this is more so of a sensitive topic that does include some details. Back to her story. When I was 
in my mid-20s, I went out with friends in L.A. Uh, we went to a rooftop bar, you know, very much like the L.A. scene. And at some point in the night, I completely d lose memory of what happened. Like, the last thing I remember is taking a picture in a photo booth with my friend. And then the next thing that I remember is, like, many, many hours later being with them in an IHOP or some sort of, like, breakfast. Mm -hmm. And then... Uh, the next day I went home and came to realize that at some point during that brownout, blackout, what have you, I had been sexually assaulted. And the reaction that I had from that from the man that I was seeing at the time was, you're such a whore. Uh, you were asking for this. What were you wearing? You probably deserved it. And it just completely like took my identity and shook it up into this mess of like, who am I? And from that, I wanted to become totally undesirable to men. I, w I didn't want men to see me, right? I wanted to become someone who existed under the radar. And and I don't, this wasn't like my cognitive thought, yeah. you know, this wasn't me intentionally sitting down, but that was the response that I took was, okay, well, I'm going to become inactive. I'm going to kind of give up working out. I'm gonna, and I put on weight. I put on a considerable amount of weight to where I was wearing, you know, Spanx every day, like in every context, going to work, wearing a polo and khakis and Spanx underneath because I was so uncomfortable, going to a football game, a Chargers football game, wearing jeans and a t-shirt and Spanx underneath because I was so uncomfortable with, in, within my body. And so by taking that back and becoming strong and focusing on the foods that gave me energy and relationships that were positive. And I had a trainer in California who introduced me to Spartan obstacle course racing. And when I competed in the world championships of that race, I just remember being on top of a mountain and thinking, I, I can do anything. I, I can really do anything. I am carrying a log up this freaking mountain. It is mile 10 and a half of this you know, half marathon journey. And like I dumped the log and then I threw the spear. It's the only time in a Spartan race I've ever hit the spear <laughs> toss. And I'm just like, yeah. Feeling myself. I am feeling myself. <laughs> so that was just like such a, it's a, a memory that I, I carry with me of like, you know, climbing the mountain. And it sounds so silly. It sounds so like aspirational and what you would see on an Instagram post. But there's this picture that a friend took of me in that race, and I'm hunched down on the ground. The log is next to me, and I'm looking up and I'm smiling, and I just see something in that woman in that picture of, like, the first time that she had really felt like she was in control of her destiny mm -hmm. in that picture. And... Um, and I think it was a, a pivotal moment for me in kind of realizing that being active and being wellness focused was more than just something that took up an hour of my day. It was something that was a huge part of my life and needed to be a huge part of my life. Hey there, just wanted to chime in really quick and mention a resource that Caroline had actually given me after the episode had ended. If you go to my website, www.theswerveeffect.com, I do a thing called episode recaps and that's where I mention tips and tricks and advice that the guest gives a listener. So the one that Caroline had mentioned in this situation in particular, it's going to vary per city, but here in KC it's called MOC 
S-A-M-O-C-S-A. They are there to advocate for those impacted by sexual abuse or assault. They help set you up with resources. They help you follow up after everything. They set you up with a therapist. Their intention is to work for you. So again, you can find that on my website, theswerveeffect.com. Back to Caroline. How do you get your identity back? What resources do you use? Where do you even start? Yeah, um, because I didn't have any recollection of the event Mm -hmm. and because of the way that that man had responded to me, for a long time I felt like I, I, I didn't deserve the identity of a survivor. And I felt like a farce even saying that I had been sexually assaulted because so many women and men they have these traumatic, traumatic experiences, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And those are so hard to deal with. And I felt lucky that I didn't have something to draw back a, a memory of. And I didn't want to sit down with a therapist and potentially open up a space in my mind that might recall what had happened. Um, and I think a part of me also was convinced that I had made the whole thing up. And, you know, at the risk of just being super transparent with this how I found out was that the next day when I was at home I was going to the restroom and I I wiped and there was a condom on my tissue paper so it was like how else would that be there you know how how else would that be there and I I wish that I had sought more support Mm -hmm. but my family like my family is what really gave me the the steps that I needed to become whole again. And fitness gave me the steps that I needed to become whole again mm-hmm. after that. Because my family, everyone is just so, so good at loving. Like mm-hmm. so good at loving. And my brother drove over from, he was going to school on the coast. And he drove over that night and he stayed with me. And Martin, if you're listening to this, you mm-hmm. are like my angel on earth. And then my sister flew out from Texas and stayed with me. And it was just like being surrounded by family and, you know, telling my parents and and their love and support. And so finally the voices that were saying, you're okay and you didn't deserve this. You didn't do anything to cause this. Finally started to drown out the voices that were in my head that were saying, yes, you did deserve this. Mm -hmm. You did cause this. And... And so it really took like five, five years. And then wow. on the five-year anniversary, I was at an Indulge event where you, you spoke. Yeah. You were going to audition for a play that day. <laughs> Which I so <laughs> bombed on the dance side. I wish you would have been my dance coach. Oh, my God. But I just remember uh, Kalo's uh, instructors, Wendy and Julia, they took us through this do you remember it? It was like this movement where we were like pounding the ground. I had to leave. I left oh, for that audition. Yeah. It was amazing. We were pounding the ground and we were like, it was just so tribal. And I was surrounded by all these women. I was just, again, it was like one of those moments like being on top of the mountain of mm-hmm. like, this is all of my pain just like coming out of my body. And I really think that the combination of that and just being inspired by Sarah making her own swerve, I was like, I'm capable like I am not uh, a daisy just planted into the ground Mm -hmm. where I am I can I can do something that really fulfills me Mm -hmm. and that really serves a purpose how how long after that indulge event did you start your health coaching the full year 
So again, I didn't know quite what I wanted to do. I actually originally was tinkering with the idea of of opening like a a teaching kitchen and of offering a way for people to learn healthy ways of cooking that okay. were simple. And ultimately, like when I did the financial modeling for that, it was not not viable. Soup's lucrative. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which again, you're like, well, I don't want to make this decision based off of money, but. And so I knew retention bonus, stay through the transition of the sale, take a month, volunteer your butt off with different organizations, find things that resonate with you, go to France with your family and spend two weeks gallivanting around France. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I do in my free time too. Um, (laughs) Go to France. And and so it was just like from the time that I found out about health coaching, which was the beginning of August last year, I sat on it, I prayed on it meditated on it for a while and then I, I just knew like there's no, no reason to not do this yeah. whether or not I go and I build a business out of it there's no reason to not do this because it's teaching me how to relate to people and it's giving me more skills for helping people with their health and wellness mm-hmm. and the more I went through this online program with the Health Coach Institute the more that I just felt this yearning to to build this business Mm -hmm. and so right around the beginning of the 2019 year is when I said I want the transformation table to be about health coaching and part of that could be working with people in the kitchen Mm -hmm. but the focus is going to be health coaching and not teaching yeah you said yearning Mm -hmm. to do health coaching and that I assume did not exist when you first decided to be an engineer right for that did that I mean did you realize that like oh my gosh this is actually a sensation I've never like experienced before Mm -hmm. this is how I know that this is what I'm supposed to do yeah there's I remember when I was a senior at Rose Holman they love to talk about a couple of things Rose Holman's got a great reputation it's like 20 years plus is the number one engineering school in the country for undergrad and grad work. It has like a 97% job placement rate for grads. And when I was a senior, the average starting salary for offers were at about 60,000 a year. So you're hearing all of these things and you're like, okay, I'm set. But also, oh crap, what if I'm one of the 3% or what if I'm under Mm -hmm. that 60,000 mark? And so, in a way, that assigned a value to you, which was a great value, right? Yeah. Like being 22 and being told you're you're worth at least $60,000 a <laughs> yeah. year, that's, that's a good feeling. For sure. And I think that I mistook for yearning for what uh, I wanted to do. I see. So there was this great excitement, but it was based off of the value that I was being assigned. And it wasn't even like, oh, look at me. I'm going to be so wealthy. But it was more about... Oh, somebody thinks I'm valuable. Mm-hmm. I have this job offer, and it's a good one, and it's yeah. in California. Like, <laughs> look at me go. <laughs> you can only see her, like, puffing up her jacket collar right now. <laughs> so making the, the, the decision to swerve was completely different because all of a sudden you realize, oh, this time I get to assign myself a value. Oh. I get... I get to determine what the potential is, yeah. right? And I remember doing this practice where you ask yourself, what's the most amount of money that you could see a client paying you for your service? And and I remember like 
being very nervous to write down $10,000. And then they're like, add a zero to the end. Boom, mic drop, add that zero. Never sell yourself short. Dallas! Because you are worth, like, not everybody's going to have a, a business that is that successful, right? Right. But when you're in control like this, you define your value. You define the potential. Mm-hmm. You get to decide where you're going to hustle, how you're going to hustle, what sort of moves you're going to make, what sort of problems you're going to solve. And you're not being told, here's your project. Mm-hmm. We're going to install this processing line. <laughs> We're going to do it in October. <laughs> so it was just very different. It was intimidating beyond belief because you're like, well, right now my value is zero. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because before you're backed by a company. You're like, yeah. okay, I am there. But now you're like, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm backed by me. <laughs> and it sounds... It sounds privileged, and it is. I hope that there are, that you listening has an opportunity to assign yourself your value at some point in your life. Because I've worked with a lot of people in manufacturing who probably have never had that opportunity to give themselves a value mm-hmm. and like to really be able to tap into what their strengths are. And I'm overwhelmed by it sometimes in a really difficult way and sometimes in a really rewarding way. And I think it's, again, helped me a lot with just growing and growth and having a growth mindset. Yeah. How, this is what, like, blows my mind. Mm -hmm. How much of an impact or a difference or value did going to school for engineering help benefit you in being a health coach? Because, and why I say blows my mind is because, like, I freaking feel like everybody I talk to Whatever they pick before somehow yeah. helps better prepare them for the next thing. It's yeah. crazy. It, it absolutely is um, problem solving. So when you're an engineer, you are just a professional problem solver. And you're a, you think in terms of patterns and puzzles. And I think that brings a lot of benefit into health yeah. coaching because you can look at things analytically and you can separate yourself from emotions sometimes. Mm. Which when you're coaching and working with clients, it definitely gets emotional. They're trusting you with some very personal things that's Mm -hmm. important to work through as we're establishing new beliefs and identities. And and so to have a background of being analytical and of being able to problem solve helps. But then also like the the human side of me I felt I still feel like I have been able to hang on to because I'm an extrovert. I crave being with other people mm-hmm. in order to like rejuvenate. And so I think that has given me good balance. And then I think being in drama and being in theater, when I was growing up, it makes me fairly well spoken on the phone and working with clients because I can think about things ahead of when I'm going to say them and I can still respond authentically but in a way that doesn't just feel like I'm blabbering or, yeah. or filling space. It's just, it's like the, all these pieces to this puzzle. And I think that's very comforting to know for the people that are like, well, I invested four years of my life and mm-hmm. $20,000, $50,000 in yeah. my college education. I can't give that up. I owe it mm-hmm. to whatever, my parents, or I still am paying on the loan. Yeah. Um, and then that's why they stay in that profession. And so it's comforting to hear that, yeah, you may have gone to do that, but yeah. see how you can utilize that yeah. and what it is that you want to do 
you know, today. Absolutely. Yeah. And I also recognize that because I have experience in manufacturing and in engineering, that I can use health coaching, again, to work with people who are still in that field yeah. and to be able to relate to them and to say, I've experienced what you're going through. Mm-hmm. And here are things that I found to be helpful. Here are things that you might find to be helpful, and they might be very different things. But I know corporate wellness is kind of like a hot topic right now, and I, I don't necessarily like have this vision of leading rah-rah retreats for businesses, <laughs> but of being a resource for keeping their employees well. Because I saw so many injuries and so many lost time accidents in the workplace because people were overworked, overstressed, poor nutrition. It is, it's a really hard environment to exist in because you're oftentimes working 12 hour days every single day. It's a, it's a seniority based system. So if you're at the bottom of the totem pole, you're working 12 or 16 hours every day, oftentimes seven days a week. And you have responsibilities at home you have commute to factor in there. And so as a result, people were eating really poorly. They're sleeping really poorly and they're unhappy. And yeah. and I think that to be able to be a resource to say, look, we can, we can help save your company money by making your employees healthier. Yeah. <laughs> like, not just paying their medical expenses, but helping give them preventative care. Mm-hmm. I think... Man, what an awesome world that would be mm-hmm. where you have people smiling on the production floor <laughs> as they're making their potato chips. <laughs> so the transformation table, how'd you come up with that name, by the way? Yeah. So the word transformation had always resonated with me. And I just had this image of Jesus sitting at the table with his disciples and sharing a meal with them and there not being any sort of like, you're of higher status than we are, and everyone was at the table equally and sharing in a simple meal. And that there wasn't fanfare to it, and that it was just a really intimate and honest experience uh, for the, the people wow. that were there. And so that was, that was the inspiration behind the name, The Transformation Table, was taking that kind of approach to transformation. I love that. That's yeah. awesome. How much, when you first get into health coaching, I there's always going to be ups and downs, obviously. Yeah. How did you, first, what's your theme song? <laughs> Keep you pumped and motivated. <laughs> B, how do you manage those thoughts that are going to come into your head? It's like, what am I doing? Today yeah. is like a slow day I'm not feeling good about. Like, what my value, what I have yeah. to offer, am I incompetent? How do you get through all of that? I think being uh, being honest with yourself. So I was doing this thing. I was putting in the hard work, and I realized that I was so lonely. Like I was so lonely, and it was crippling my ability to be successful mm. during the day. And I'm very much like make a list, check things off of the list. That's how <laughs> I'm going to be successful. And you can do that when you're launching off on your own. Mm -hmm. You don't have to have someone telling you the list to do um, to be task-oriented. You can make the list and execute it. But I found that I was being less and less impactful on a daily basis because I was 
I was lonely yeah. and I need to be around people. And I started to realize that for me to be a health coach, that would most likely mean sitting by myself and being on the phone or, you know, meeting with clients one-on-one, but that I needed to see the same people every day. So I, I took a part-time job in retail mm-hmm. because I wanted to see similar people every day. I wanted people to notice when, like, when I was part of the crew, yeah. right? And it was an opportunity to be social with people in a happy environment. They're and get the word out there for you, too. Yeah. And and so at first I, I felt like that was an indication that things weren't going for well for, well for me because I needed to pick up this work. Mm-hmm. But I realized it was more about my mental well-being than it was about anything else. And, yes, it takes time away from building my business. But I was also taking time away from building my business because I was so unhappy and, and lonely. And I was engaging in unhealthy things like eating a crap ton of pita chips in the <laughs> afternoon <laughs> you know I don't know they got a good hummus with them it's insane <laughs> yeah I somehow missed the hummus oh, theme song what's the theme song what's your oh, rocky man. song I mean you were the one that like picked the songs for the players back in the day yeah how do you enter into your morning? <laughs> yeah. So I don't know that I have like a pump up song as yeah. much as I have like in the zone music yeah. that I, I play music and they're by two specific artists, uh, Amos Lee, which was here last week and I saw him and he oh, was amazing. Nice. Um, back to my like ceramic pottery days in high school, I've been listening to his albums. I listened to... During every final in college, I listened to his album. So it's always been, like, deep work music for me. And then Need to Breathe is the other artist. I just, that is the kind of music, like, that you roll down the windows, drive down Highway 1, Big Sur, (laughs) and you're like, nothing is ever going to be so difficult in life that I should give up. So it's not, like, pump-up music. It is music that makes you feel like I'm, I'm capable. Truth. Yeah. How many times in a row did you play that song? What's the most times you've played a song in a row? I have, uh, while you think of that, I played 10,000 Emerald Pools legit 48 hours. I didn't listen to a damn other song. I was like, this is, I don't even know why. I just hadn't heard it in forever. I don't know. Um, Oh, man. (laughs) I would say probably... Like, maybe an album specifically. I played on loop for that amount of time when, when studying. <laughs> That's awesome. um, yeah, Amos Lee's first uh, album, I probably played that much. But there was a song, actually, there's a song that first introduced me to Need to Breathe called Multiplied. And I'm pretty huh. sure I've listened to that song for close to like <laughs> not consecutively 24 hours yeah. because I did sleep. But it's, <laughs> it's a song about God and it's a, a song just about like hope. And it was. I was introduced to it at a time in my life where Mm -hmm. I was like, didn't have a relationship with God, didn't have a relationship with hope, and it was like something to cling to. So, Favorite book you would suggest for somebody maybe wanting to, or maybe not like necessarily wanting to swerve, but it's kind of helped you along. So for me, I really responded to Jen Sincero's You Are a Badass at Making Money. Boom, shakalak. Because it's helped me do a lot of deep work on the way that I was relating to money. Mm -hmm. It's helped a lot of really healthy conversations with my husband around money, which, of course, money is like the number one argument inducer in marriages. And so we've had some awesome conversations about fiscal responsibility, what our narratives are around money. And 
how to be more generous with our money. Yeah. And and so I really, really like that book a lot. Mm-hmm. And I would recommend it to anybody who feels like their relationship with money could improve, which is most of us. Yeah. 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 Okay. What's been the hardest effect yeah. of this work? The going from having responsibility for a group of people. This is very, like, animalistic of being a boss and being responsible to a group of people. Mm-hmm. And then, like, all of the dopamine and all of the mm-hmm. like, the chemicals and the hormones that you feel associated to that. And then to not have that mm-hmm. for a period of time. It, it was such a way of dressing an identity with, you know, every single day. And then all of a sudden, you're like, oh, my stress is gone. That's great. <laughs> I feel good, but I'm missing this vital piece. And how do I, like, bring that back into my life? How yeah. can I get creative with that? And also, stress is a good thing. Overstress yeah. is not a good thing. And so when I took out a big part of my stress load, there weren't a lot of other things in my life to stress me out. And so my body was dependent, physically dependent on that level of cortisol. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is like not something that we really have a lot of control over. So it was used to this level of cortisol. And when I wasn't getting that level of cortisol, my body created it by eating. Mm-hmm. So here I am going on this route of becoming a health coach and then I feel like a farce because I can't stop eating. And it was my body's way of responding to the need for cortisol by providing stress through through food. So it was very interesting like yeah. to be able to have kind of that science view of things mm-hmm. and to realize that by taking away stress and by taking away the responsibility, it opened up space for a lot of good things to occur. Yeah. But I still needed I still needed some semblance of that yeah. in my life. Best effect from the swerve talking to me right here yeah absolutely (laughs) knowing you um i feel like i have a femininity that i haven't had for years Mm -hmm. maybe even ever i'm more proud of the woman that i am than i've ever been and i think i have a little bit more grace with myself other days i have zero grace with myself (laughs) Um, but I'm learning more and more how to tune into what she wants yeah. and what she needs and to respond to the cues and to understand when when are the days that we're going a thousand miles an hour and when are the days where we need to rest and we need to invest, yeah. rest and invest. Uh, yeah. How do we reach you, ma'am? Yes. Um, so I am on Instagram at the transformation table and I'm on Facebook under the same moniker and then my website is www.thetransformationtable.com and you can book a free consultation with me through the website I'd love to just chat about health goals no commitment no hassles and you know you can always find me at like the end bakery in <laughs> Where everyone in Kansas City is perched. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. She gonna change your life. Um, thanks so much. Yeah, for this being has here. been awesome. It's so it, it's so fun to talk about this mm-hmm. and um just to be hopefully inspiring to those who are listening. And totally. yeah, I appreciate you very much. High five above the mic, girl. Yeah. Woo! <laughs>